your thinking brain is inaccessible in meltdown. And so when you talk to someone whose thinking brain is offline, they can't process it. They can't think about it. They can't respond to it. It's just adding to the overwhelm. You're just piling more on to an already overflowing bucket. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD podcast. We are here again with a behavior revolution episode with Sarah Wayland and I, who founded the Behavior Revolution together. And it's an initiative devoted to celebrating and supporting kids with ADHD or autism through neuroscience-backed insights, hard-won strategies, compassion, and guidance. And so we're here as the Behavior Revolution for our monthly behavior episode of the Parenting ADHD podcast. And today we are going to talk about how to manage meltdowns, which we get asked so very often, right? (laughs) So, so often. And it was something that I didn't know for a long time. I really had to figure it out. And the way I first sort of started figuring it out was realizing that my kid had zero control when he was in a meltdown, a full-on meltdown. He had absolutely no control over himself. And I'll tell that story in a second. But I think we need to start with what we define as a meltdown and the fact that a tantrum and a meltdown are different things. For me, a tantrum is a purposeful outburst to get what they want. And when it's a tantrum, once their need is resolved, the tantrum stops on a dime, just instantly stops. And in a meltdown, the brain has been hijacked and flooded and they are not in control and they actually have to just go through it and go through some recovery. They cannot stop you know, a tantrum can be the start and it can turn into a meltdown. So even if you're in meltdown territory now and you're saying, okay, I will buy that toy, for instance, they can't stop it like they could if it was a tantrum. Anything you want to add to that distinction, Sarah? I really love that you bring that up, Penny, that it can start as a tantrum and Mm -hmm. shift into a meltdown because it honestly took me years to figure that out. Like people would say, what's the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown? And I would think, you know, I somehow this isn't working right, but it's really true. Like a kid can start out saying, no, I want the candy bar or I want to do whatever. And then they just kind of spiral out of control and it becomes something entirely different. Yeah. And so I think it's important to remember that, that it could start out as trying to manipulate people. And then, you know, as they get more and more upset, then, you know, their body shifts into some crazy mode that they really have no control anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to share the story about Luke when he was young. The story is in at least two of my books, I think. I know it's in Boy Without Instructions. Um, But this was the kind of the pivotal moment where 
I and his dad both were like, whoa, he's not doing this on purpose. He's in zero control of this. And it started out by asking for a toy. <laughs> we we had actually been snowed in for an entire week in our house with no power, no running water. And we had finally gotten out that day. And we had gone and done some fun things and went to Target for them to spend their allowance. And we wanted to eat dinner out because we had been cooking on a gas cooktop, but we were like melting snow for water. And we just, you know, we desperately needed somebody else to make a meal and it'd be a really yummy meal. And so we were waiting for it to be late enough to do that. And we popped into a Goodwill store because I just wanted some picture frames I could paint. And I told them, both kids walking in, Luke was, I would say seven, maybe eight. And I said, you know, you can each choose a book. You can get a book here, but we just got toys at Target. You just spent your allowance. Okay, okay. So they run to the books. And then, of course, he doesn't see anything he wants. And as he's coming back to find me, he passes some toys. And there was a broken RV car. So it was the car, like the car Jeep or something. There was no remote. (laughs) One wheel was missing. So you couldn't even roll it on the ground yourself, right? And it was a dollar. And he just had to have this broken car. And I just had to say, I already told you what you could and couldn't have. And I'm going to stick to that, right? This was the time I was going to stick to my guns. And it completely escalated into madness. So it started clearly as a tantrum. He wanted it. I said, no, he was going to try to figure out a way to get it, right? So it quickly devolves into screaming I hate you. You don't love me. It's only a dollar, you know, anything he could think of to try to sort of twist me into his way. And then the tears came and the shouting. And by this point, you know, everybody in there is watching us, right? Everybody's looking. People are literally coming around the corner and looking down the aisle. It's a big scene. And I just wanted to leave. And so I'm trying to leave. Dad and sister had already fled. It was just me and him in the store. And I just grabbed his hand and I was trying to get him out. And he was just pulling against me. You know, he did not want to leave because he could not get this broken car out of his mind. And the more I pushed to leave, the further he got beyond tantrum into meltdown, right? And so I finally was able to get him out the door. And I'll never forget, we walk out the door and the door closes behind us, but then I can't get him off the sidewalk into the parking lot to get in the car. And so as he's pulling me, every time he pulls or pushes to try to, you know, move me to his will, the door opens again and it's like theater curtains, right? Everybody's still standing in the store just watching like it's some play. And so this door is opening and closing on this just catastrophe that's happening, right? And so then he grabs my purse, which is on my shoulder, and he just leans his whole body weight holding it. At this point, I think he thought as long as she can't move, there might be a, a chance of going back in, right? And he was getting so flooded with emotions And he almost knocked me down on top of him. And I kind of got, of course, super frustrated because I didn't know any better at the time. And I said, 
we are walking to this car right now. Like, and I grabbed his hand and he, you know, screamed louder, objected louder, but he actually physically came with me. But then he wouldn't get in the car and he's screaming. And then his dad gets out and he's trying to just lift him up and put him in. And he's putting all his arms and legs out, right? So he can't fit through the opening. And I mean, it was just beyond anything I could have imagined as a meltdown or a tantrum or anything. Like you just never imagined your kid could go this far over the cliff. And we finally got him in the car. He wouldn't buckle. So then his sister was having an anxiety attack because he wouldn't buckle. And I kept telling her, we're not leaving yet. We're not going to go until he buckles and until everything's calm. But that energy is contagious, right? So we're all just feeling so out of sorts. And he's kicking the seats and he's screaming. And by this time, he's saying, I want the book, not the toy. I want the book. Because now at some point, he was like, okay, well, I'll take anything. (laughs) I need something, right? And so he's sitting in his seat in the car and he's just going, I want the book. I want the book. I want the book. It was like a record in a scratch. It was so robotic. And we looked at each other and went, he's not in there right now. Like he is just not in control. And he was starting to sort of come out of it at that point because he was much more calm. And he was just having this sort of rhythmic repetition of what he was saying. And he finally got to a point where we could talk to him and he would answer and offered him a snack and some stuff. And then, you know, then he just felt awful, right? He just felt so awful, so regretful, but also just really bad that he had hurt me, that he had embarrassed us, that, you know, the whole thing. And I mean, my husband and I, we grabbed each other's hand and we were crying in the front seat. Like, we just were like, wow, we couldn't believe that it went there. And we were so sad for him. We were so sad for him that he had to go through that because we were realizing that it wasn't a choice, you know? And so that was when I learned what a meltdown was. And I learned that we're not in control in meltdown, that our brains really have just sort of gone on some sort of crazy autopilot, right? Just completely flooded and that it just had to cycle out and we just had to give it time and space. And so that was my first foray into learning what a meltdown was. But I think it's a really good illustration because it was a really big meltdown, right? And there were so many things, but that piece of it where he was just repeating like a robot was so clear at that point that it wasn't his intention. None of it was in his control after that first little bit. So I just always like to tell that story, not to relive the pain, but to to help <laughs> other people, right? We're helping other people by sharing our stories. And it's a really good illustration. I think a lot of the parents listening to us right now can relate to that, can relate to a time where their kid has had some similar sort of outburst that they really couldn't change. And that's what we're here to talk about in this episode is those outbursts that you can't affect in the moment, which we call meltdowns. Yeah. And you know, Penny, that story is so powerful because it's clear after some point, like he just tipped over that cliff, Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, it's funny too, because I was just sitting here remembering episodes like that from, from when my kids were little. Like I look back at these things now and I realize it's not just the thing 
that they say they want, but there's also like some something else going on that I see so much more clearly now. Like mm-hmm. my son couldn't stay in his seat in the booth in this restaurant and he kept crawling under the table and it was gross down there. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, get out from under the table. But like now looking back at it, I'm like, oh, he was overwhelmed by the fluorescent lights mm-hmm. and he was just trying to get into a little cave. Like I look back at it now and I'm like, oh, that's what that was. But I mean, this led to a like 30 minute meltdown involving my husband having to carry him out to the car and strap him into the back seat. And yeah, I mean, it was horrible. But like, I look back at it now and I'm like, what did it hurt him to just sit under the table? Right. You know, like, because other people change. were judging it. Yeah. But if we weren't making a scene over it, they wouldn't even know he was there. <laughs> you right. <know>? Right. <laughs> yeah. I think all the time when I go in restaurants or in a store or wherever and a kid is either just loud and rambunctious or, you know, clearly having a hard time. I get it. Like, I never think, oh, my gosh, would they just get their kid to straighten up or would they just get their kid to stop crying or, you know, why do they not have control over their kid? That never comes in my mind anymore because now I'm like, I totally get it. I get what they're going through and I hope that someday they get it too, you know, that they understand it. They will, yeah. But we had the same things. Luke would constantly be under the table in the restaurant and everybody was mortified and I was kind of like, big deal. Like, you know, you get to a point (laughs) where you just can't fight everything and when you fight it, it's not helpful. And so I got to a point where I was like, you know, there's a lot worse things can be happening right now than that. (laughs) But it was, it was overwhelm and it was shelter from that. And, you know, we don't think about the fact that the store or the public place is light or bright or loud or, you know, unfamiliar. Or having to sit still for too long, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're expecting behavior that maybe isn't doable for our kids. Yeah. Well, of course, they're going to lose it. Right. If we're putting all that pressure on them and they can't release it because they can't comply in the ways that we've asked them. Right. Yeah. So I think that's really good illustration of what is a meltdown? What are we talking about here before we give you the tips on managing it? Because I think you have to really understand the differentiation between tantrum and meltdown. And that was a big aha for me. Like, I remember finding this chart online on somebody's blog and it said, you know, a tantrum can be turned off instantly when the request is met and a meltdown cannot, even if you meet what they've asked for, even if you meet, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So, (laughs) you know, even even with that one, I find it's a little misleading because sometimes, like, let's say the meltdown is about you know, wanting to be under the table because it's too bright in the restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're forcing him to sit in the booth where it's bright and you let him go under the table, like he's not experiencing that sensory overwhelm. So you are meeting his need and he will calm down more quickly, right? Eventually, yeah, yeah. But not instantaneously, right? Well, usually there's sort of a period of... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know? (laughs) But with a tantrum, it's like instant oh thanks for the candy bar <laughs> yeah it goes from blubbering Score. and wailing and screaming <laughs> to like it never happened in a millisecond I right think that's the distinction yeah yeah so you want to dive into our five steps to manage meltdown sure that sounds like an awesome thing so the first one 
you should talk about this one because I find that this is easy to say and really hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's a learned skill with lots of practice. So the first step is staying calm and being able to lend your calm to your child. Co-regulation. You've heard us talk about co-regulation. You know, we are wired as human beings to mirror in kind. And so when someone is yelling at us, our instinct is to yell back. It's protective. Yep. And we have to override that. We have to be mindful and aware and take action that we are going to stay calm. And it takes a lot of practice. And it takes, I think, too, you know, a sort of keeping an eye on the fact that your child is having a hard time. They're not, behavior is not intentional. They're not in control anymore. That always helped me to stay calm when I could say, okay, he is really just having a hard time. It's not about me. It's not about the things he's saying to me because he doesn't even mean them. Yeah. It's about the fact that he's struggling. And when I know that he's struggling, now I can be calm because that's what he needs from me, right? So now I'm helping him by staying calm. See, you're such a better mom than me. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I get overwhelmed from sort of a sensory standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so like if my kid is really screaming during the meltdown, like that full-throated, ah, yep. you know, it's very hard for me to stay calm. And I've had to learn that it's actually better for me to say, hey, dude, I can't really you know, stay calm right now. So I need to go give myself a break yep. and just leave. And and sometimes, you know, he'd run after me and pound the door and so mm -hmm. on. But I literally just was so overwhelmed myself that I couldn't stay calm. And yeah. I, I honestly think this is the hardest skill we stuck here first in our list. And I, I, you know, I've learned a lot of techniques over the years, but it's definitely so hard to just you know, and the other thing my husband says a lot is he says, but when I yell, then they stop. Mm, so many parents say that all the time. Right? Yeah. But at what cost? Exactly. That's always my question. At what cost? There's at what cost. And there's also that you're not teaching them. Mm -mm. You're forcing like you're compliance. not modeling. You're not modeling the behavior you want them to have, right? It's a short-term reward. But if you want a long-term investment, they have to learn how to calm their own bodies down. And, you know, just stifling it doesn't actually teach that. And it, it can have long-term physical consequences for kids. And mental health consequences. Absolutely. Like kids who were raised with fear-based parenting, which is pretty much the traditional approach, let's be honest. Yeah. It's the approach at school for compliance as well. But kids who, I guess, have more extreme experiences in that regard have way more anxiety and depression as adults. Of course. So it's yeah. trauma during development. I mean, if we want yeah. to really lay our cards out and be really real, you're traumatizing your kid while they're developing which is very, very hard to heal yeah. and to sort of make better down the road. Yeah, yeah. So we really have to be very cognizant. But I love that you brought up that if you can't be calm, there's alternatives. <laughs> you can walk away. Now, you have to be careful about that because some kids, mm -hmm. that's very escalating. They feel rejected. 
So, you know, you have to lay the groundwork for that. And I think that comes in one of our later steps here. So we'll, we'll get to that. But, you know, just work on it. It's a process. You're not going to be great at it this afternoon or this evening after hearing this because you heard it and that's what you want to do. <laughs> it's not a switch that you can flip. It's something that's yeah. going to take a lot of practice. And then you have to be really kind to yourself when you make mistakes because we all do. Right. And I think communicating to your child that you're human mm-hmm. and that you make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes parents will ask me, well, you know, I don't feel like I should have to apologize for this. Right. Mm. I apologize all the time because I am such yeah. an imperfect human being. And so, <laughs> you know, I do have my moments where I really don't do the ideal thing. And so I just say, you know what? I messed up. I'm so sorry. I wish I could have done better, but in the moment I wasn't thinking clearly. Yeah. And that's real life. That's what it is to be a human being. And when we don't show that side of ourselves to our kids, they think that there's something wrong with them because they're making mistakes. We're sending the wrong message entirely, and that's not what we mean to do, but that's what happens. Right, right. So step two is showing empathy. And can I just say this one is such a game changer? So powerful. The first one, I feel like you don't get immediate feedback that it's helpful. Mm-mm. And so it's it's like a long-term investment, but you're not going to get feedback in the moment that it's helping your child. But over the long term, it definitely helps. But the second one works almost instantly if they're able to process what's going on. Yeah. And step one, staying calm, is really the foundation. Like yeah. all the other steps are going to go better if you're calm, right? And yes. <laughs> or as calm as you can be. So it's kind of like the foundational piece to the other steps. Right. Yeah. So when you show empathy, you're letting your child know that you see that they're struggling. You want to give some examples? You're really good at giving examples of showing empathy and validation. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This <laughs> This one for me, like it was such an eye-opener to me to realize how helpful it was for my kids to know that I understood what was going on for them. And while you were talking about the number one, you know, staying calm, being the foundation for everything else, if you show empathy while you're not calm, it really doesn't feel like empathy. (laughs) So if you're saying, I see you're really upset, (laughs) it doesn't really, really help very much. So you do have to stay calm to show empathy. But, you know, I'll, I'll just use the example from the diner when we were, you know, when my son was hiding under the table. Like, you know, when he started losing it, you know, when we kept pulling him out from under underneath, if I had just said, oh, I see you really want to be under the table, you know, and I'm sure it's much more cozy down there, right? If I just said something like that, instead of, hey, get up in the seat here, nobody wants you down there, like, that's gross, there's food on the floor, you know, Mm -hmm. don't do that, you know, then all that's doing is rebutting his feelings, and it makes him feel like I don't understand. Yeah. And so... You know, just saying, hey, I, you know what, I can see why it's, you know, more comfortable down there. And truthfully, like over the years, we learned to always bring a hat with us into restaurants and things like that. And even though it's considered rude to wear a hat or your hoodie with the hood up, heaven forbid, then, you know, that's a way of blocking that light out. Yeah. 
And so, you know, over time, because I understood that the light was dysregulating for him, I could see that. We actually keep a blanket in our car because when the light's coming in through the windows, my son gets very overwhelmed, even still. And uh, he just keeps the blanket with him all the time. And when it's overwhelming, he puts the blanket over his head (laughs) and it's fine. Accommodation. So there you go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But showing that empathy is really helpful, I think. Because then your kids know that you're not just asking them to do the thing, like that you don't understand the cost of it, Mm -hmm. you know? For them, yeah. Yeah. So if you say, yeah, I can see how how that's better, you know, for you under there. It feels cozy. You feel like there's not, it's not as noisy. It's not as bright. And then you could say, you know, if you could sit up in the chair, maybe we can, you know, put in some foam earplugs, which I still carry around in my purse for them. And put my sweater over your head or something like it helps them to understand that you see what the cost is for asking what you're asking Mm -hmm. and that you get it I mean all our kids want is for somebody to get them yeah and it's much more validating and I think even if you don't know the reason if your kid's under the table he really doesn't want to come out he's going to melt down if you make him even if you don't understand that it's too loud or too bright or he just feels safer under there. Yeah. You can say, you know, I see that you're having a really hard time in the restaurant tonight. It can be more general and still be very comforting and empathetic. Yeah. So keep that in mind as well. Step three, respond. Don't react. Pause and respond with purpose. Decide what's best instead of just instinctually sort of blurting. Like we always get so upset when our kids blurt things out, right? And that's kind of what we're doing when when they <laughs> yell at us and we just yell right back. We just explode right back, right? Like we have yeah. to just take a moment and really consider what's going on, consider that they're having a hard time and come up with a purposeful response. That one's really hard too, because, you know, there's like your instinctual mind and your rational mind and the rational mind is so much slower to act Mm -hmm. than your instinctual mind and so sometimes you really do have to like just say okay i know i want to you know stomp or yell or or push them where they need to go or whatever and that's your fast brain talking but your slow brain might know if you held your hand out to them in an inviting gesture, they might be willing to come with you as opposed to pushing them where they need to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I learned to just make myself take a breath. Mm -hmm. Before I open my mouth, take a really deep breath and blow it out slow. You know, and and what we're doing is we're regulating our own nervous system by doing that. (laughs) But we're also putting a little bit of a pause and a break in there so that that thinking rational brain can be more usable. And you know, Penny, you're modeling for your kids what you want them to learn Mm -hmm. to do. Yep. Always. Always. They're always watching, (laughs) right? They're always watching us. (laughs) Yes, they are. It it drives me up a wall. And And I used to do this too. But it drives me up a wall to see parents who are yelling at their kid because their kid was yelling at them. And I'm like, but you're teaching them to do that. You're teaching them that when you get frustrated, you scream. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. When you can sit back outside of that situation and think rationally about it, then you're like, well, no wonder. 
Like I just literally told my kid to do the thing that I didn't want them to do, that I was upset with them for doing. I just showed them that that's what you do. Yeah, I have a friend who always says, do what I say, not what I do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, we're not wired that way. No, we're (laughs) not. And kids especially, (laughs) they're much more likely to emulate than to just take those words and use them later, especially impulsive kids. Like, yeah, we can't just tell them how to be and then an hour later expect that they remember that and they're going to be able to call on it and use it and stop themselves from doing something crazy and do exactly what we had told them that they should be doing, right? Like, (laughs) when you think about it that way, it's just insane. Because we're taught that you tell your child to do something and they do it, period, right? And so we don't question that until we have a kid where we need to question that. But really, this is for every child. Every single child would do better under these sort of parenting premises that we're outlining here. Step four. My favorite. Stop talking. I was going to say, this is our favorite. If you do (laughs) nothing else, and we really hope you do all of them, but if you don't, (laughs) stop talking because you're only making it worse. Here's the thing. The emotional brain, the survival brain has taken over. The thinking brain is offline, right? Your thinking brain is inaccessible in meltdown. And so if your thinking brain isn't accessible, it's not working. When you talk to someone whose thinking brain is offline, they can't process it. They can't think about it. They can't respond to it. It's just adding to the overwhelm. You're just piling more on to an already overflowing bucket, right? Yeah, yeah. Talking in a meltdown is so bad. And we're not saying ignore your child because that could really escalate too. You know, you've already gone through these other steps where you're saying, you're having a hard time. I really want to help you, you know, and then you're leaving it alone until they get to a place, their brain gets to a place where their thinking brain is coming back online. Yeah. And, you know, I think too, especially with parents who are very good at talking, like they have great (laughs) language skills, right? Mm -hmm. They think, oh, if I just explain a little more, then my kid will see the wisdom of what I'm asking and be able to do it, which, you know, might be true, except that they can't process what you're saying. I think the thing that made the biggest difference for me understanding why this doesn't work is that when you're overwhelmed, there are physiological changes that make it hard for you to understand language. So like your middle ear constricts, so you can't hear things as clearly. And then also, like you said, your your thinking brain just goes offline and you literally can't understand language. And so like understanding that I can talk all I want, it's just coming through like that Charlie Brown teacher, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> then, okay, that's not helping my kid. I think I'm explaining myself, but my kid can't take advantage of all that wisdom I'm trying to to impart. (laughs) Yes, I am the great rationalizer. And (laughs) I just wanted to rationalize him right out of any behavior. Right. That was my instinct. Type A, let's fix it, right? And oh my gosh, no matter how much I talked, no matter how much sense I made, (laughs) Nothing changed, right? And when I realized that the emotional brain, the survival brain takes over and the thinking brain goes offline, I went, oh my God, no wonder that never worked. It never, ever worked. 
ever. Yeah. <laughs> and I just kept doing it because this is all I knew how to do, right? It was the great rationalizer and that should work and it didn't work. And that's why, because physiologically he couldn't right. process that. Right. He couldn't add anything else. And they want to. You know, that's the other thing. They want to so much. Like, they know you want them to listen. And so they're trying so hard. Mm -hmm. And then they just get even more overwhelmed because they know they're failing. And they get, yeah, more upset with themselves. Yeah. More internalizing of what's happening as them being bad or broken. Yeah, yeah. It's a really vicious cycle if we don't, you know, manage it in a way that's helpful yeah. rather than, well, harmful. There's yeah. no other word for it, right? You know, we have to recognize our kids' perspective on it. What are they hearing? We might be saying something and intending something. They could be hearing something entirely different. Wah, they could be, wah, wah. yeah. <laughs> or you know, mom walked away. She doesn't want me. Mm. Well, right? gosh, that's the whole piece that. Oh, I don't even know where to go with that, Penny. It's like, hard. If, it's because yeah. now we're we're asking parents now to manage themselves, stay calm, even though their body is saying, Run. yell back, <laughs> you know, throw something to you. We're asking them to think about what's going on for their kid. And it's not that they're trying to hurt you or that they're bad. Yeah. And we want you to also think about everything you say and do, what how your kid's interpreting it. It's a lot. And I think it's stages. Like I came to that third stage of being very mindful of what unintended messages I was sending mm -hmm. just a few years ago. And I've been in this for 13 years. Right. So, right. gosh, more than 13 years. So, you know, we're not saying that you're going to be able to walk away from this podcast and know <laughs> what you need to do. You'll know what you need to do, <laughs> but you're not going to be able to do it all right away. So don't expect that of yourselves. We don't expect it of you. And you're going to fall off the bandwagon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, sometimes you're just going to really lose your marbles. And yeah. that is okay. I, you know, just do better next time. So when you know better, you do better. Well, and you're imperfect, too. I mean, that's something mm -hmm. I just remind myself all the time is that we are all human beings. And we all have our moments, even when we know better, we just can't help it. Yes, because we have these autonomic nervous systems and we have all these things <laughs> that are are also in control, right? Like yeah, we think yeah. that we're in control of ourselves completely. Like through our thinking brain, we control ourselves 100%. We don't. Yep. We are, we are yeah. not completely in control of ourselves, even as rational, maybe neurotypical, grown-ass parents. We still <laughs> are not completely in control. Because that's all we all want, right? Is to be in control of everything. Because yeah. <laughs> we feel the most comfortable when we're in control of everything. But we can't. Yeah. <laughs> we can't be in control of everything. And yeah. and that's just some of the work that we have to do on ourselves. You know, me being able to be very transparently imperfect and being okay with being imperfect came from a whole lot of self-work. Yeah on acceptance. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, that was stuff that I was doing myself outside of my parenting and my family. And it was extremely powerful for, you know, instances like we're talking about. 
meltdowns, but also just the day to day. I just don't get all riled up about everything, which is amazing considering that I have massive anxiety. <laughs> you know, <laughs> go like, Penny. Good job. <laughs> it has been more transformative probably for my anxiety than for my parenting has been wildly transformative for my parenting. But yeah, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for saying, hey, this is the human experience mm-hmm. and I'm no different. Yeah, I'm no different. Where, what is it? Beautifully complex and marvelously imperfect. It's part of our manifesto. So step number five, honor your child's needs. Well, this gets to what you're saying, yeah. Mm -hmm. You have to understand the child that you have, right? And you have to do what they need from you. And really the example there is know if your kid needs you to go away or needs you to stay. For me, that was a big deal because I would go away and he would run after me and he'd be more upset and more panicked and, you know, because to him it was rejection. And when I realized that, then I could stay and not talk, right? I could could follow all of these steps, but I could stay there. I could say, hey, I want to help you when, you know, your thinking brain's back online and we can do this then come and let me know. And I'm going to hang out because I love you and I want to support you, but I'm not going to talk until we can problem solve. I have to tell you a story about this one. I had a client come in and her daughter kept getting really upset at her. Like she would get really upset and then she'd start beating her mom, like just literally running after her and pounding Mm -hmm. on her. Yeah. And she would say, and the little girl would say, go away, go away, leave me alone, leave me alone. And her mom was trying so hard, like to be there and be, you know, a loving, calm presence. And her daughter was shouting, go away, leave me alone. Mm -hmm. And so I watched the video and I said, well, what happens if you go away? And she said, she said she calms down. And I said, so why didn't she go away? And she said, well, I wanted to be there for her. And I, I said, you know, I think that's an amazing thing that you were able to think that in the moment. Like I would have been running away in right. that moment. But, you know, she was like trying so hard to be a good mom. And her daughter was someone who actually needed her to truly go away so she could calm down without mm-hmm. anybody around her. Right. And so every kid is so different. What they need is so different. And it's different at different times. When my yeah. son was little, I had to stay. Now that he's a teenager, yeah. young adult, he yeah. wants to be as far away from me as possible because why? <laughs> I'm a rationalizer. I talk. He just needs quiet and peace to process. Yeah. Right? And I've had to learn. You know, you were talking about she's screaming at her, go away, go away. What would you do? My former parenting self would have been like, no, we got to fix this. I can't go anywhere. This is not, you know, mm-hmm. we're not done. Right? Mm-hmm. And I would just keep rationalizing. I keep talking. I keep trying to make it better. And that's a really big point here, too. We're trying to make it better, but we're actually making it worse. Yeah. We don't doubt your intentions. Your intentions are to help your kid or to protect yourself if, you know, they're exploding. But your intentions are good. You want to help them. You want them not to struggle. We don't want to see them hurt and suffering. But we go about it in ways that actually escalate the situation so often because we don't know better. Yeah. So now everyone listening knows better. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to hold you to it. I'm kidding. 
Well, and the point you brought up that I think is just so critically important, too, is that our kids change. And even from day to day, what my kid needed yesterday might be different than what he needs tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you have to stay curious and, you know, stay alert to whether what you're doing is helping or not. And take the cues from your kid. Mm-hmm. If they're saying, go away. <laughs> They mean it. (laughs) Right. You know, and you don't have to just walk off upset and in a huff with your feelings hurt. You can say, okay, what I hear you saying is that you need some quiet time. You need some alone time to work this out. And I want to respect that. Yeah. So I'm going to walk away, but please come to me if you need me. Yeah. Yeah. Works great. Now they know that you care. Right. And that you are at least trying to get it. Mm-hmm. You're trying to understand their point of view. That's super powerful. That goes a long way, especially with teens. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so we're going to link up a printable of these five steps of managing a meltdown on the show notes page for this podcast episode. And we might link up some other resources. We've talked about other things as well there and link you to the behavior revolution, of course, as well. And those show notes can be found at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 167 for episode 167. Any closing thoughts, my friend? Um, <laughs> kids do well if they can, and parents do too. <laughs> I'll leave with yes. that. Yes. <laughs> Yes. You know, we say it all the time about kids and adding parents in there is so, so helpful to us. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it allows us to give ourselves grace. Right. And our kids grace too. Mm -hmm. And I guess with that, I will see everyone next time and we'll be back in a month with another Behavior Revolution episode as well. So take good care. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.